Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hello, and welcome back to the History of Egypt podcast. Episode 77, Lean and Swift. Today, we arrive at a new era, the reign of a king who was master over all he surveyed. From the battlefield to the sports field, King Amunhotep II carved out a remarkable niche in the annals of the pharaohs. Today's episode is brought to you by Catherine Richardson. Catherine, thank you for your generous donation to the Coffee Fund. Today, I have followed your advice and upgraded from instant coffee to a nice cafe espresso. New Zealand has the best coffee. That's a fact. Thank you for the treat. To everyone else, grab a coffee or a tea. Today's episode is definitely brought to you by the power of caffeine. After all, Amunhotep II could also be called the Sportsman King. Let's dive in. Before we begin, a quick note on the sources. The sources for today's episode are remarkably thorough. King Amunhotep II left a wonderfully detailed account of his life, as he wanted it to be remembered. In his reign, the king commissioned several stelae, stone declarations of various political and religious purpose. On these stelae, Amunhotep described parts of his life, his youth, his deeds, the accession to co-regency, and then his arrival on the throne, and his achievements once he became king in his own right. There are three great texts sprinkled throughout today's episode. In order of appearance, they are called the Great Sphinx Stealer, the Elephantine Stealer, and the Amada Stealer. From these records, mostly discovered in the late 1800s, Egyptologists have unpacked a wealth of information. Today, I am fortunate enough to give you a lean, mean historical account. It is a treat to have this much detail, and it's damn good stuff too. Before he came to power as a pharaoh, Amunhotep II had a typical royal childhood. The prince was born around 1459 BCE, which was year 36 of the reign of his father. His mother was a queen of Egypt, the glamorous Merit Rey, great royal wife of King Tutmos III. Amunhotep had elder brothers, but they may have died before he was born. So Amunhotep, from a very young age, was recognised as the heir to the throne. He grew up in the purple, so to speak, and his life was dictated by the requirements of that position. As I think we'll see, it definitely influenced his personality in some very visible ways. Before authority and duty took over his life, The prince was an active and vigorous youth. Raised in the palace of the royal harem, alongside the children of notable courtiers and wealthy families, Amunhotep grew up in comfort and splendour. From an early age, he was taught the skills of a pharaoh, leadership 
administration, reading, writing, hunting, that sort of thing. In a nobleman's tomb near the Valley of the Kings, a royal official named Min left behind a wonderful little testament to this period of the king's life. On the walls of his tomb, Min, the mayor of a town called Neken, portrayed himself accompanied by the young prince Amunhotep. Amunhotep, still depicted as a child, is shown holding a large bow and arrow. There is a target set up before him some distance ahead. Behind the prince, the courtier Min places a hand on Amunhotep's arm. As he draws the arrow, Min guides him, and he says in a speech, quote, Enjoying a lesson in shooting in the courtyard of the palace of Neken by the king's son Amunhotep. The mayor of Neken, Min, says, Stretch your bow to your ears, make strong both of your arms. End quote. This is an adorable little scene. The elder tutor, steadying the prince's arm, shows him how to shoot with good form, with proper technique. It's a charming moment, and the specificity of the location, Neken, with the instruction by Min, suggests that this event probably actually happened. Amunhotep seems to have taken to archery from a young age. Of all his activities as king, archery was the one that he referenced most often. But there was another skill back in his princely days, a skill that would serve him well, a skill that brought him great joy in the carefree days of his youth. Early in his life, maybe around the age of 12 or a bit later, Amunhotep was taught how to ride the chariot. Evidently, he took to this skill, and soon his ability to ride came to the attention of the king himself. Thutmose III was impressed with Amunhotep's facility on the chariot, and the king now made his son a truly royal gift. The king gave Amunhotep horses. Early in life, Amunhotep demonstrated a passion for riding, riding chariots, maybe riding horses themselves, we're not sure, and taking his steeds on excursions around the area of the palace. On one of his biographical stelae, he tells us all about this. Quote, Now when he was still a youth, Amunhotep loved his horses, and he rejoiced in them. He was determined to work them, to learn their nature, to be skilled in training them, and to understand their ways. When this was heard in the palace by his father, King Tutmose's heart was glad to hear it. Then his majesty addressed his entourage, saying, Let there be given to the prince Amunhotep extremely fine horses from my majesty's stable, which is in the city of Memphis. Tell him, look after them, instill fear in them, trot them, and handle them well if there is opposition to you. End quote. Well, lucky Amunhotep, a young man gifted by the king himself with fine steeds from the royal stables. These weren't run-of-the-mill horses. These were the product of generations of breeding and bloodlines. The Egyptians had been practicing horse husbandry for more than a century now. The horses given to Amunhotep were bred for speed, for stamina, and for war. Much like Amunhotep himself. Quote, As he was rejoicing at what he heard about his eldest son, King Tutmose said in his heart, He will make a ruler of the entire land, one whom no enemy can attack. He will be eager of heart and bravery, rejoicing in victory. 
It is the God who puts this into his heart to act so that Egypt might be protected for him and the land bow down to him. End quote. Now, this may sound like propaganda, and it is, but it's not impossible to suggest that Thutmose III did look at his vigorous, active son and think, well, maybe there's hope for the boy. Giving him access to royal horses was certainly a vote of confidence. Maybe Amunhotep would prove himself worthy of the power that would one day be his. Amunhotep took to his horses with glee. He stabled them, trained them, raced them, and cared for them. Working in the stables at the city of Memphis, modern Cairo, Amunhotep learned the art of animal care day by day. Soon, his majesty put Amunhotep in charge of the stable itself. Quote, now, the king's son Amunhotep was ordered to look after the horses of the king's stable. Indeed, he did what he had been told. He raised horses without parallel, which did not tire when he grasped the reins. They did not sweat when they galloped. End quote. Hyperbole aside, you can almost hear the pride in Amunhotep's words. This was clearly a passion project. The prince of Egypt was a man who cared deeply for the mighty steeds in his charge. From young rider to stable manager, the prince seems to have taken pride in his work. We can assume from his description that he took at least some degree of personal responsibility for the care of these horses. Maybe day by day he was more involved with supplying the stable than anything else, but at least in the early period of his life, he probably was quite hands-on. It is entirely possible also that he helped to oversee breeding arrangements, maybe choosing which horses would go to stud. If this is true, and I'm totally speculating here, then it would be one of the first times we've ever seen a king so actively involved in the care and rearing of such animals. Amunhotep was no cattle herder like his deceased brother. He was a horse tamer, the ancient Egyptian Hector in all but name. One day, and this part is particularly great, Amunhotep hitched up his chariot and went off on what can only be described as a princely joyride. Quote, then Amunhotep yoked his horses in the city of Memphis. He did this secretly, no one seeing. He rode out of the city and stopped at the resting place of Horus in the horizon, which is the Sphinx. He spent time there leading his horses around the Sphinx and observing the excellence of the resting place of Khufu justified and of Khafre justified. End quote. In what may be one of my favourite references in all the New Kingdom, Amunhotep II went for a joyride around the plateau of Giza. He visited the Great Sphinx, which he called the resting place of Rei Horakti, and he visited the two great pyramids, the pyramids of Khufu and of Khafre. An early tourist, Amunhotep admired the immense pyramids of the Giza plateau, and he paid his respects to the memory of these now legendary kings. Menkaure, the builder of the smallest Giza pyramid, he left out, which is a bit harsh, but I guess Amunhotep was more impressed by size than anything else. The pyramids of Giza had an effect on Amunhotep, and it gave him an idea. Quote, his heart desired to cause these great kings' names to live, but he put it only in his heart until such time as that which his father Ray had commanded for him. End quote. 
Amunhotep here makes reference to the day when he would become king. Inspired by the pyramids of Khufu and Khafre, and impressed particularly by Khafre's great sphinx, Amunhotep conceived the idea to commemorate and immortalize the names of these two kings once again. How did he do this? Hmm, I'll come back to that. Three years of horse-rearing, joy-riding, and youthful endeavors were happy days for Amunhotep. The prince was carefree, still in his youth. He had all the time in the world. His father indulged his talents, and Amunhotep's early biography focuses almost exclusively on his feats as a man of action and physical activity. Amunhotep was an athlete, a sportsman. He loved to run, to ride, to row, and to shoot, and generally to act the part of a mighty prince, one animated by the spark of the divine. Amunhotep enjoyed these activities above all, and when his time came to actually rule Egypt, these were the avenues through which he would distinguish himself as a man and as a king. Before he could become king, though, Amunhotep still had much to learn. From the age of 15 onwards, his basic training in stablery and sports was put directly to use. In 1444 BCE, King Thutmose III appointed his son to the rare and exalted position of co-regent. This was a form of early coronation, proclaiming Amunhotep as the future king by way of making him a ruler alongside his father. Of course, no 15-year-old was wielding the full authority of a pharaoh right away. Amunhotep seems to have spent the first two years of this arrangement alongside his father, learning the arts of governance and leadership firsthand. He slowly gathered more power to himself as his father withdrew into retirement, but it was very much a kingship under supervision. I'm sure the prince did not mind this too badly. Now, at the age of 17, Amunhotep was old enough to lead his first campaign, his first foreign expedition. In the last months of his second year as co-regent, the prince set out from Egypt to make his mark on the world beyond the Nile Valley. His destination? The Levant and Syria. Leaving Egypt and his father, whom he would not see again while alive, Amunhotep gathered an army and set out for the foreign provinces of Egypt's empire. He travelled north, either by sea or by land, to the countryside of Lebanon and the district called Takshi. Takshi was near to the Orontes River, somewhere close to the powerful city of Kadesh. Historians still haven't settled on its exact location. It is simply in the vicinity of Kadesh and this area. Wherever it was exactly, Amunhotep chose Takshi as his target. The prince and his army advanced against the land of Takshi. They attacked it directly, but we're not sure why. The king suggests that there was some kind of rebellion, but he neglects to describe it in any detail. Since Egyptians usually loved to describe rebellious enemies in hateful specificity, it's a bit suspicious that Amunhotep says nothing at all. You almost wonder if the young co-regent simply drummed up an excuse and went ahead with his war anyway. Or maybe Thutmose III told him to go here, to remind the locals just who was in charge. Either way, Takshi was in for a bit of a rough time. Amunhotep and his soldiers marched against the land of Takshi and invaded it. They plundered the region, attacked the local elites. 
In the manner of Levantine or Canaanite societies, the people of this region were probably half settled and half nomadic. Their leadership would have been a warrior elite, controlling various strong points like fortified towns. Unfortunately, Takshi seems to have been fragmented and disunited. They could not withstand the Egyptian army. There were at least seven different regions or provinces within Takshi. We know this because Amunhotep specifically counts seven chieftains that he captured. If there were more, they must have escaped capture or death, and made their way past Amunhotep's reach. Naturally, the prince did not mention this last point. Amunhotep captured the seven chiefs of Takshi, and, well, this part is kind of brutal. Quote, his Majesty Amunhotep had smitten with his own mace the seven chieftains who were in the district of Takshi. They were placed upside down at the prow of his river boat. The boat called Akkapurure causes the two lands to be established. Thereupon, six of these enemies were hanged on the walls of Thebes. Their severed hands were hung beside them. End quote. The image of Amunhotep brandishing his mace high and then bringing it down on the head of seven captured chieftains is upsetting. Whether you are new to this kind of scene or you're more than familiar with TV shows like The Walking Dead or Game of Thrones, the image of the king is a sober one. His mace was bloody, matted with hair and chunks. Before him, the bodies of six men lay prone in the dust. Their heads bled dully. Their eyes were glazed and vacant. The ground was stained with gore. Amunhotep was clearly making some kind of demonstration here. Maybe he was making a point to the locals. Maybe he was showing his power to his own soldiers. Either way, the message was clear. Amunhotep II was not a king to be trifled with. Unfortunately, this little massacre was not going to be an isolated incident. The prince did not prosecute this war on his own, of course. He was accompanied by officials who served the High King Thutmose III. These men, probably on the younger end of the spectrum, were sent out with the co-regent, both as guardians and as comrades. Amunhotep would know these men for many more years. A campaign together was a good way to build up loyalties and encourage camaraderie among the next generation. Among the officials sent to Takshi was a man named Usur Satet, or the goddess Satet is strong. Based on his name, Usur Satet was probably from southern Egypt, the region around Elephantine. That region was where Satet was particularly favoured, and Usur Satet's later career would see him working extensively in the south, particularly Nubia. In fact, the text where Usur Satet talks about this campaign comes from the fortress of Semna in Nubia. So yeah, probably a southern gentleman, closer to Thebes than Amunhotep's Memphis, maybe a bit more rustic or rural in the tradition of the far south. Either way, he was a man on a military mission, and he was here to assist his king. Usur Satet was present on the campaign into Takshi as a chariot officer and a royal herald. He was among Amunhotep's entourage, the officer corps of the army. As a herald, Usur Satet's role would be to go ahead of the army and gather supplies or recruits from nearby towns. As a chariot officer, Usur Satet would rampage across the battlefield, disrupting enemy lines where he could. 
Usar Sartet made mention of this campaign only once, on a stela that he erected on behalf of the king. In it, he makes a single reference to the events of this time. The reference sheds no light on the war or its purpose. He doesn't even mention the slaughter of the chieftains. But he does flesh out the personality of Amunhotep somewhat. According to Usar Sartet, Amunhotep said to the official, quote, These people of Takshi are all of no consequence. What earthly use are they? End quote. Now, whether he was dismissing them in a military sense or as a people altogether, one thing is pretty clear. Amunhotep held very little regard for these people who were submissive to or subjugated by the Egyptian Empire. In a casual moment of ancient racism, Amunhotep reveals to us that he was, like many people born into the imperial roles, somewhat contemptuous of those who did not earn his respect. Later on, we'll see him treat with foreign kings more politely, but when it came to the lowly, the peripheral groups, Amunhotep simply couldn't have cared less. I mean, who were these provincial bumpkins compared to the shining splendour of the Egyptian pharaoh? Another official in the army of Amunhotep was named Amun Erhat F, or Amun is before him. Amun Erhat F led a company of soldiers, a regiment called Sa Neket Takshi, or the Victorious Against Takshi Regiment. This is a great little name, probably bestowed on the regiment at the start of the campaign as a morale booster. These soldiers and this official only appear briefly in the record. Still, the name of this regiment, the Victorious Against Takshi, is kinda cool. Amunhotep was clearly treating this affair seriously. I suppose, for a 17-year-old co-regent with dreams of empire, this must have been a truly exciting moment. So the chieftains of Takshi, all seven of them, were lying dead in the dust. But Amunhotep was not done with them yet. Cleaning off his mace, the king ordered that the left hands of the chieftains be cut off as trophies. Then he had the chieftains' bodies and hands gathered up and brought back to Egypt. When he returned to Thebes, Amunhotep had the bodies of six of the chieftains strung up on the walls of the city. These were probably on the outer walls of one of the great temples, Luxor or Karnak. Hanging lifeless and missing a hand, the bodies of the slain chieftains were a grisly proclamation. King Amunhotep has arrived. Enemies of the air, beware. The king also had the severed hands of these officials stuck to the walls. Why he cut them off in the first place if he was just going to stick them on the same wall doesn't make much sense to me. Maybe it was a whim, maybe the hands were on a different wall than the bodies. Either way, Amunhotep's grisly trophies were a sight to behold. There was still one body left though. Amunhotep had slain seven chieftains, but only six were hanging from the walls. That left one behind, an extra trophy. So what was he going to do with it? Amunhotep ordered that this last body be loaded onto a ship and taken south. It was to go to the land of Nubia and be set up at the southern limits of Egypt's territory. There, it could be a proclamation of the king's ferocity, a monument to his victory at the limits of the earth. Usur Satet, our friend from the south, was the one probably responsible for this particular atrocity. As a right-hand man of the new king, 
and one with a strong connection to the region around Nubia. Usur Satet may have been tasked with taking the body of the Takshian chieftain up the Nile River. At Napata, the southern limit of the Egyptian empire, Usur Satet hanged the body on the walls of the town. It was, like the bodies hanging in Thebes, a testament to the victory and ferocity of the new pharaoh. It was also, of course, a warning to those Nubians of the south. Amunhotep cares little for the provincials of the Levant. What do you think he'll do to you? Now, when Amunhotep returned from his campaign against Takshi, he came back to good news and bad news. The bad news was his father, Tutmos III, was now dead. After nearly 54 years on the throne, the elderly king had passed into the realm of Osiris. It was a time for mourning. The good news was, Amunhotep was now king, sole king, master of all he surveyed, the living incarnation of Horus, the king of Upper and Lower Egypt. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. On his return to Egypt, Amunhotep did what any pious son should do. He buried his father in his tomb dutifully laid a shroud over the coffin, and sealed the tomb away for eternity. Once that ritual was complete, Amunhotep could at last consider himself the true anointed king of the land. What did he do with his new power? Well, first of all, Amunhotep ordered that all monuments started by his father were to be completed. Even if they were half-built, work would continue. Amunhotep would not have his father's legacy tarnished with incomplete monuments. Of course, if the new king should add his name or image here and there, what harm? He was supporting the ongoing work, why shouldn't he be recognised for it? So unfinished monuments of Tutmos III soon became monuments of Tutmos and of Amunhotep. This happened at a number of sites, with the result that buildings frequently bear the cartouches of both kings, side by side. It was a win-win scenario, really. The constructions were completed successfully, and Amunhotep could demonstrate his piety towards father and god. The project was probably a good idea all round. Amunhotep also took command of the administration of the country. Now I'll cover that in more detail in a later episode. Suffice to say, the king was not an idle ruler. Amunhotep presided over various policies and activities, particularly the reception of tribute from foreign land. He appointed officials directly, retained others from his father's reign, and generally settled into the business of government. It was necessary work, but hardly his favourite. Amunhotep as pharaoh seems to have carried on some of his youthful passions. Far from withdrawing into a more sedate life at court, Amunhotep continued with his physical feats and his acts of sport. From rowing to archery, he was still an athlete at heart. Quote, 
Now his majesty arose as king, as a fine youth who was well developed, having completed eighteen years in bravery. He was one who knew every work of the war-god Montu, without equal on the battlefield. He was one who knew horses, one whose like did not exist in the numerous army. There was not one there who could draw his bow, nor could he be approached in running. The king is strong-armed, one who would not tire when he took up the rowing oar. As the oarsman for two hundred men, he manoeuvred at the stern of his boat. One paused after they had travelled half a mile. His majesty was strong under his oar. He paused and landed his boat only when he had gone three miles without resting. Faces were aglow, watching as he did this. End quote. Like an Ivy League rower, Amunhotep proclaimed his endurance on the water for all to hear. I mean, he sets this up almost like it was one of his first acts as sole king. He introduces his accession, and then it's straight into the rowing affair. Perhaps the king made this one of his early demonstrations of prowess, proclaiming his fitness to rule through a display of literal fitness. Or perhaps the king held celebrations to mark his accession, and he included feats of strength as part of the proceedings. Now, there is some academic debate on this matter. Was Amunhotep so obsessed with sports that he made them his signature from day one? Or are these texts merely focused on a particular trope, the idea of a vigorous and healthy king, and using it as a propaganda tool, a part of the royal myth? Either way, Amunhotep seems to have been proud of these deeds. Continuing in the same vein, Amunhotep commemorated his skill at archery. Quote, he drew three hundred strong bows, comparing the works of their craftsmen. When the king entered his northern garden, he found erected for him four targets. These were made of copper, of one palm in thickness, with twenty cubits between one post and the next. Thereupon, his majesty appeared in his chariot like Montu in his power. He took up his bow and grabbed four arrows at once. He rode northward, shooting at the targets, his arrows coming forth as he shot at another post. This was a deed that had never been done before, shooting at a target of copper with his arrows, which passed right through it and landed on the ground. End quote. In a passage bearing more than a passing resemblance to the Iliad or the Odyssey, Amunhotep speaks of his skill in firing arrows straight through his targets, he speaks of this as a feat of divine strength. His skill and power are comparable to the war-god Montu, who raged on the battlefield without equal. Amunhotep, likewise, is able to shoot arrows with such force that they pierce right through copper targets. If you're looking for a demonstration of physical fitness to rule, it seems like Amunhotep had chosen a pretty effective one. Embedded in a target of copper, the arrow of Amunhotep II was a symbol of the king's favoured skill. As it quivered, vibrating from the impact, Amunhotep made an announcement to the watching crowd. Quote, then his majesty pierced the target with his first arrow. He caused it to pierce seven-ninths of the way through, the shaft coming out the back of this target. His majesty stepped forward, saying, Anyone who can pierce this target as deep as the arrow of his majesty shall receive splendid things. Then they shot at this target. End quote. 
The text is fragmented, but the implication is pretty obvious. No one could match Amunhotep's feet. Not on his special day, not on his own celebratory inscription. Whether anyone was capable of shooting like this is a question for the ages. I doubt there was a soldier brave enough to upstage his king on such a day. We have no idea if Amunhotep was prickly or insecure, but still, it's not wise to tempt fate, right? So, the king came to power at the age of 18, and he soon demonstrated to all and sundry that he was a fit, healthy, and mighty man. A worthy pharaoh indeed. All could look upon him and see true royalty. The overriding question, I think, is what does all of this actually mean for Amunhotep's personality? If sports and athleticism were the only records that survived of this king, we would perhaps see him as a dilettante, a playboy. But far from being a crowd-pleaser like a Commodus, Amunhotep was also an active leader and commander. Although his early tactics were brutal, his reign began on a high note. Here was a true son of his father, a worthy heir to the military might, to the amazing legacy of Tutmos III. Amunhotep, king of Egypt, was surely going to do great things. On the next episode, we will start to see how far Amunhotep's magnificence could take him. As the king turned his attention to administration, he began to take care for the thousand and one affairs of governance and rule. These responsibilities and duties are described to us in a remarkable text by one of Egypt's highest officials. Then, inevitably, the king faced a great test. With a new generation of rulers coming to power all across the Near East, the political pendulum was swinging back towards a period of conflict. Soon, Amunhotep would be engaged in a true war, a defensive war, a war with the kingdom called Mitanni. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.